Well, good morning, Disciples Church. It's good to be with you today to worship our holy God, to study his written word. What a joy it is to have God's word for us, to know him better, to grow in all these ways. Will you grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn with me to the letter of James as we continue our series that we're calling Faith at Work through this letter of James. And today we'll be focusing on verses 19 through 21. James 1, 19 through 21 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Word of our Lord. Know this, my beloved brothers. After James has brought some clarity as to who God is and how he works, specifically, as we saw last week in verse 18, how he saves, James is going to dive into some some counsel, some exhortation to his beloved brothers blood-bought family in Christ based on these things, based on who God is and how He works. In verse 1, we, we see that James' audience is um, the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So it's Jewish Christians, Jews who were saved and now have trusted Christ with their lives that He's writing to. They're dispersed. They're going through great turmoil. They're not home. They're they're being persecuted. They're, they're going through great trial. So James is writing to bring counsel, to bring encouragement, to bring gospel reorientation, and to press that they would see and know what steadfast faith is and looks like. Faith in Christ that remains at work. One of the sweet ways the New Testament authors often do this is to remind the hearers of biblical truth. To remind them, hey, you know this. And they use that phrase, know this. It's their way of saying, don't let these truths slip away. Remember them. Live them. Keep them in view. Keep them center. Keep truth. At center, in a world full of lies, in a, in a life where our flesh longs to satisfy itself, is, is often, often deceived in sin and temptation, as James has already pointed out in this chapter, he's saying, know these important truths. Know this. Because I love you. Because you're my blood-bought family in Christ our Lord. Because I want to see you honor Christ with your lives. I want to see you remain in faith and finish the race. Church, we need this too. We need it all the time. I need it all the time. I need our elders to, to know me and to walk with me and to speak into my life, to, to love me enough to 
to remind me of important biblical truths that my flesh would not rear up or turn left or right to satisfy itself, to help me fight my flesh, to fight temptation, to hold fast to God's truth so that I would walk by faith and not by sight. And you need this too. You need it. You need people in your lives to do that. And let me just ask you personally, who is that? Who in your life have you invited in in such a way where they get to speak freely? They get to speak boldly. Sometimes, sometimes we assume that they, they know that's who they are. No, we need to re-invite them often. I want to remind you, that's you. You're that in my life. Don't hold back. Love me enough to say what I need to hear. Love me enough to point me to biblical truth, to walk with me in this life. Oh, how we need this. We're, we're so prone to wander into myths, to take up fleshly practices along the way. It is a great gift of God that in the body of Christ, we get to be reoriented to gospel truth along the way. Know this. One of the places I love where we see this happen in the New Testament is in John's first letter, 1 John chapter 2, 13 and 14. Just observe it happening in another place. You can see how central it really is. In just a few verses, see if you can catch um, some emphasis here. John says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do you hear its emphasis? You know. You have You are. John is saying to his brothers and sisters in Christ, No, remember that you've overcome the evil one. That you are strong in Christ. That the word of God abides in you. How does one navigate the the trials of this world, of this fallen society? The temptations that it brings? How do you grow in maturity, in faith, in life, in Christ? By the Word of God. We must never minimize the crucial place the Word of God has in our lives. We need to receive it and abide in it and do it. We need to be reminded of who God is and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf and therefore who we are. We need to to be instructed and led by the Word and in God's great truths. Some of you really need this today because you need to stop trying to fight the evil one and, and all the lies that permeate in our society, all the temptations coming against you on your own. You've been trying to do it on your own too long. Maybe you still attend church or have even people that you'll meet up with for lunch, but you haven't gone there to invite them in, to know you and walk with you. And what a difference. John is saying, know who you are in Christ. Know who you are in the Word. Do you have people 
reminding you of these truths often. That we would live it out. That we would abide in it ongoingly. So James is focusing in this portion of the opening part of this letter um, that there is a, a faithful receiving, abiding in, and then living out God's Word and the truths of God's Word that are so critical for us in our faith remaining at work. See it just in the few verses that we're in right now. Verse 18, last week, we were brought forth in salvation by the word of truth. And then today in verse 21, receiving with meekness the implanted word. And next week in verse 22, that we would be doers of the word and not hearers only. See how central the word of God is, that our abiding in it, submitting to it and applying it is central to our faith remaining at work. So James is telling his hearers, this is how faith remains at work. This is how we walk this road. The Word of God having its way in our lives. And and this is critical because faith for many is superficial. We see this throughout the Scriptures. People who think that they have truly surrendered to, to Jesus as Lord... But superficial faith is not saving faith. It is religion. It's taking parts of what you think you know about God or or certain facets of religion or denomination that are out there and you've you've added it to your life. It's a work-based economy because in the end, you don't trust God. You haven't died to yourself and been reborn unto a life that says, everything about me is yours now. That's what the scriptures say new life in Christ is. We don't add God to what we're doing and somehow think that that makes us good and and make make it all work out. When you don't submit to Jesus as Lord in every way, you then in the end are still right in your own eyes. You still are Lord of your own life. The Bible shows us again and again that those who are truly born again, truly converted, have an affection for God, a true trust in God, and a faith in Him. That that we desire His Word. We want to be led and instructed and commanded by the Holy God. Just as a newborn child doesn't need to be taught how to long for the milk of their mother. A a newborn Christian doesn't need to be taught to to long for God and to long for His Word. Jesus made it clear to the Jews who had believed in Him in John 8.31, If you abide in My Word ongoingly, live there, let it wash over you, let it lead you and If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The Disciples' Church is our name. It's a central part of the Great Commission for the church in this time, and we take it seriously. We have many people here, by God's grace, who are maturing in their faith as true disciples of Christ. But understand, true disciples of Jesus 
long for the Word of God. You make it a priority to be in church on Sunday, to sit under your shepherd's teaching of the Word as God's ordained and instructed His flock to grow and mature. You you long to grow in the Word in your own personal study and in inviting other mature believers around you in group life and discipleship life to teach you and equip you and stretch you. You want to know God more and more. You want to grow in God more and more. So you make it a habit to spend true time abiding in His Word. I pray that we'd be people of the Word of God ongoingly. Jesus said very boldly in John 14, 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. To to say that I've trusted Jesus with my life and to, to tell people you own a Bible, but then not to submit your life to him and to the word, to not keep his commandments, to not walk in the righteousness that he's purchased for you in Christ. If anyone loves me, he continues in verse 23 and 24, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make a home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. All of this points to clarify what James is pressing in the opening of this letter. The truly saved, those reborn of God, those who trust Jesus with their life, have a lasting faith. Not momentary, not fleeting, but it's lasting. A faith that remains at work. It's built in one who receives the word of God, obeys the word of God, and abides in the word of God. To truly heed his word and obey him. I pray you don't just hear my words today with your ears, but with your heart. I pray the Holy Spirit brings real conviction. What a gift of God when he doesn't leave us where we are, but takes us to a new place in our maturity, in our faith. Maybe you're guilty, if you're very honest with yourself, of playing mind games with these things. You, you will say, oh, no, I love God and I've trusted Jesus with my life. And, and I obey most of the commands I've read in his holy scriptures. If this is you, then you should repent of your disobedience. You should repent of being right in your own eyes. For what you're doing in that is to say, I've trusted God, Jesus is Lord, but at the end of the day, you're still Lord of your own life. Why? Because you're still declaring what you will or won't do. You're cherry-picking out of the Word of God the things that you're willing to do, but still over here doing what you want to do. Jesus is not Lord in that situation. You are. For Christ, if he's not Lord of your life, then you might obey some of his commands out of religious obligation. May we truly honor God by obeying his word, by submitting to it. May, May he be our soul's longing and our true joy that his word would do its intended work in our lives. So James is going to take these next verses now to flesh out what faith at work looks like, what life in Christ looks like, as opposed to when our flesh is on the throne. Both verses 19 and 20 
build into verse 21, where James will say, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The the things we're about to talk about in verse 19 and 20 are built on what we just read in verse 21. That when we truly and joyfully receive the implanted word of God, um, we are saved, we are made new. This is what we looked at in verse 18 last week. Church, our souls are lost without gospel renewal, without new birth, without truly trusting Christ. I pray that if you're here today and you trust yourself, you trust your efforts, you trust your family heritage, your good grades, your good looks, your money in the bank, that you see if you trust in these things, you're damned. For none of those things make right your sin before the holy God. That you are desperate for Christ alone. Your only hope is in Christ. To trust in Jesus. We must be brought forth by the word of God. Reborn from the lostness of our efforts. And to trust in Jesus. That's what we saw last night in verse 18. To receive with meekness the implanted word of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We cannot remain Lord of our own lives. We must be desperate for Jesus to die to ourselves, to live to Christ and for Christ. To be born again by God's grace, we are desperate for. To turn from our sin and to trust and obey Jesus with all of our lives. Only Jesus and the truth of His Word can save our souls. If you're saved, if you belong to Him, if you serve Jesus as King, then you joyfully receive the Word of God. You receive it with meekness, with humility. That's what that word means there. Receive with meekness the implanted Word. Receive with humility. To be humble in Christ means your flesh is not in charge. Your feelings are not in charge. It means you're teachable and you're moldable. It breaks my heart to see people who claim Christ as Lord be confronted with something the Scriptures teach and to say, yeah, I see that that says that, but I, I just... I feel that this is right. I'm going to trust my feelings over the authoritative word of God. I I believe it's all going to work out if I just keep going this way. Instead, we are to be moldable, teachable at the authority of God's word. For Christ to be on the throne of our lives means it's, it's my joy to obey him, to know him and follow him. It means my dispositions change. My, even my priorities begin to change. Not only do you know salvation, but you begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit, which means a very different lifestyle. And that's the elements of what we're about to see here today in verses 19 and 20. What it looks like when we're reborn by God, when Christ is our Lord and we're no longer Lord of our own lives, when we 
humble ourselves to receive and obey His holy word. And we don't give way to the enticement of our own fleshly desires, as we read in verse 14. Church, see that God's holy word, when we're saved in Christ, is implanted. It is taken root in what God has made ready, the soil of your life. By his sovereign regeneration, as we saw last week. Peter speaks of this really well in 1 Peter 1.23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. So with that framework around us, in the front and the back of these three verses, let's dive into the three specific areas that James highlights here. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Oh, how desperate we are for Christ to make us new in Him because our flesh doesn't like to be humble, right? I mean, we are full of moxie and ego and pride. We love to speak our minds, to selfishly share our stories, to take over the conversation. Solomon says it this way in Proverbs 18.7, A fool's mouth is his ruin, And his lips are a snare to his soul. We surely can and do get into a lot of trouble with the words we say, right? I mean, we could spend the next week by just who's in the room telling stories. I said this, and it meant this and this and this, right? I mean, we can can be arrested for the words we say, prosecuted, sued, fired, demoted, simply for the words we say. We can lose close relationships or a great opportunity can pass us by, but just because of the word we said. Washington Irving was an author in the late 1700s and early 1800s, and he once famously said, the tongue is the only tool that grows sharper with constant use. (laughs) Solomon speaks to this again and again. In in Proverbs 18, verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. And then in verse 13, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. We've all done that, right? We, we, we spoke quickly and then came to find out, oh, oh, that's not how that went down? Oh, my bad. And now you're embarrassed because you didn't slow to listen, to understand. To give the benefit of the doubt. And this is right in line with what James is saying here. In such meaningful counsel that we would be slow to speak. Beloved, we really need to consider what we will say before we say it. Because our words can and do affect people. And they affect and reflect on our testimony in Christ. I found in my own road of sanctification and maturing in Christ as a husband, as a father, as a brother in Christ, as a pastor, and even as a preacher, that honoring Christ many times is less about what to say 
and more about when not to speak. It is our ego that drives, that wants to speak, that wants to vomit at the mouth. It is sin. It's our pride. Patience, church, is a fruit of the Spirit. Solomon is bold to say that an unbridled tongue is the practice of a fool. How often we're guilty of being fools. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Notice that James gives the counter practice. Not only that we'd be slow to speak, but quick to hear. The humble practice of listening. Why is it humble? Because it means you're counting the other person more important than you. It means you're willing to put them first. You're respecting them. This is a Christ-like disp- disposition. It, it, it takes true humility to value and practice listening. To value and want to hear what the other person has to say before driving the conversation to make them hear what you want to say. In almost 20 years of pastoral ministry, I I have seen the value of this practice. One of the greatest tools I've seen take marriages and business partnerships and families and church relationships to another level of unity and love is just listening. One of the reasons why listening is so hard for us in our flesh is because it takes time. We're a fast-paced people. We like things to come quick and be done. Don't often slow down enough to value listening. We have to be willing to invest in the relationships that we're in and the person that God puts before us. And one of the great practical ways we can grow in this is to understand different levels of listening. If you've ever sat with me through some of my marriage material... This is a, a great tool. and pr- Probably a majority of the counseling I'll do with people is not to impart new wisdom, but is simply to help people listen to each other. To slow down and hear each other. For the sake of the relationship, for the sake of mutual resolve, unity. But we're pretty pathetic at listening. So let's take a moment and just see how we play games with this. Real practical, real fast. There's different levels of listening. The worst level of listening is ignoring, not listening at all. Completely ignoring you. The TV's on or whatever else I'm doing, I'm focused on it. The next level of listening is pretending. It's, it's those of you who are ninjas at, at not listening at all, but throwing in words like, yeah, uh-huh, right? You're not really listening, you're just making it look like you're listening. The next level of listening is selective listening. Selective listening is when you only hear the parts of the conversation that you want to hear. The parts of the conversation that make your position better and you ignore the rest. The next level of listening is attentive listening. Attentive listening is when 
we value the, what the person's saying or what the topic is enough to say, you know what, let me turn my phone off or put it away. Let me turn the TV off so I can really focus on what you're saying. Let me, let me pull the car over. Let me change my body position, my posture to, to look at you more directly and look at you in the eyes. To be attentive to what you want to say. Now many would say that that, that seems like the peak, right? I mean, I, I can't imagine how it gets better than that. But it is. The difference between attentive listening and the next one is the game changer. If you can learn the next one, listening and, and what James is getting to and what Christ in us does, it's, it, it's, it just changes everything. And that is empathetic listening. Empathetic listening looks to listen not just to what is being said. I know you said blah, 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 blah. Empathetic listening looks to understand why you said it. I want to understand your frame of reference. I want to understand why you feel about that the way you do. I want to show you so much love and care that I get where you're coming from. And many times when there's dispute or conflict in a relationship, when you slow down enough to practice empathetic listening, what it does is it, it pulls your, your guns down and, and you begin to get your arm around the other person and begin to see it the way that they do. And God uses that temperament to bring resolve in relationships and love and unity. How can you better slow down and value those around you to listen better to coworkers, to neighbors, to friends, to church members, to family? Church, I want you to see the importance of God ordaining this very specific and pragmatic counsel. See that it is the practice of those who are humble and submitting to God and His Holy Word. See that it is the Spirit at work within us. Your flesh wants to speak. Your ego wants to declare. Your pride wants it your way. But Christ in you and your faith at work means a whole different priority and practice in these things. One final aspect to this quick to listen, slow to speak, as it relates to the Word of God, as it relates to our walk with God. It is the person who wants to always speak his or her mind that is often right in their own eyes and therefore is less interested in being counseled and commanded by God and His Word. See, see, this will not only take your horizontal relationships to another level, it will take your relationship with God to another level. For if you will slow down and just listen better, what, what, what does God want to tell you from His Word? What is he, how does He want to counsel and lead you? The goal is to hear His truth. It is to be corrected by it and changed and molded, to hear his commands and then to live them out. 
to be willing to repent and change your position or your conviction according to God's holy word. To gain, and this is the best part, as we do this, it gives us a greater, wider view of who God is. Of his power, of his majesty. And you know what that will also help you do? When you're in the presence and the power and seeing the majesty of God, you'll have a lot less to say. And you'll listen more. And you'll be in awe of him. To be in awe of God is a great gift. One of the greatest blessings of a greater view of God from his word is a greater awe of him. And this changes our disposition. It humbles us. It is the man who sits before the mighty God via his holy word who is taught to say less and listen more. Is taught to be utterly silenced in the presence of God's holiness and beauty and power. May it be so. May it be so for us in our church, for you in your homes, and for you as individuals. Let's see another application James gives us as we continue. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Solomon also speaks to this topic quite often. For example, Proverbs 29.11. A fool, here's the fool again. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. word spirit there basically means anger or emotions or feelings. Solomon says it is wisdom to check your emotions and anger and act with restraint. Whenever you're stirred up, you feel unrighteous anger brewing. You feel like an injustice has happened. It's good to slow down. To, to take it before the Lord in prayer, to go to the Word. For some of you who are good at getting angry and arguing and fighting a lot, if you would just implement this into your lifestyle, when you feel it brewing, that you even get permission in your relationships to say, time out, I just need to go be with the Lord. And, and, and go to prayer and go into His Word and see what that does to your angst to vent that you've been wronged or whatever has you feeling so central to all of that. To to slow down and and, and check our flesh in the presence of God. Look at this part in relationship to the last. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. See, when you're thinking only about yourself, you'll be quick to speak out about whatever injustice or offense has been made. But when you are thinking of others, you will long to slow down. You'll long to understand their position or reason. And you'll be willing to give them the benefit of the doubt before you just declare, hey, here's what it is and here's how it makes me feel. How many fights have you had with a spouse or a loved one or a close friend simply because you chose to fire back in your emotions before you gave them the benefit of the doubt or asked questions that looked for clarity or understanding. 
the counsel of Solomon in the Proverbs and in James here in his letter is for any relationship. It will go better for you if you will slow down, hold back your immediate fleshly emotions and anger, listen longer, empathize, and aim to truly hear them. Slowing down to really listen and give the benefit of the doubt gives you opportunity to be prayerful, to seek God's word, and to do this, to to gain a Christ-centered disposition or perspective, to gain a gospel perspective on the situation. What the gospel does, and being reminded of the gospel does in situations, is it gives us a renewed perspective. See, while the other party might have truly messed up or offended you, when you are reminded of the gospel, you are reminded that you are not better than them. That apart from God's saving grace, you are just as guilty and just as capable of doing whatever they've done. And that gospel perspective then helps you to change your trajectory of your emotion, your anger, and how that would play out. To help fight us, to help, to, to help us fight against self-righteousness or a self-justified response. And not to say that you don't still say ouch or to speak honestly about the hurt or the offense, but but the gospel also gives you an opportunity before sharing your disgust for it to forgive. Because in the gospel, you're reminded that you were forgiven when you didn't deserve it. And so to be reminded that you're really no different than them apart from God's saving grace, that by no self-righteousness are you somehow better, and then also to be reminded of, of God's forgiveness in your life, thereby giving you the power to forgive them, see how that completely begins to set the table for a much different response than letting your anger brew and have its way. Now there is a righteous anger modeled in scriptures um, that is spoken of, but, but that's not what we see here. And one of the reasons that we know this is an unrighteous anger is where James goes next in verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When we trust in God and walk by faith and heed his counsel from his word, we will not be overtaken by our flesh or by our circumstances. We will not be driven by them. We will not let them rule us. Our identity is in Christ and not our circumstances. When we're overly affected by our circumstances, we open the door to let the lies of the enemy come in, to to let our flesh have its way. Church, our our faith at work, the, the evidence of the new birth in our life, the humble submission we have for God's word, should mean a growing change in these areas in our lives. Let me ask you, is there fruit in this area for you? Have you been growing and maturing? If not, then there's hope for these things as we walk in Christ and grow in these truths. Submit ourselves to his word. Invite others in to hold us accountable. That's become a practice for my wife and I in our home 
approaching 20 years of marriage, we, we've had to invite each other in and, and love each other enough that, that when we're letting our sourness of our circumstances spin us out, to love each other enough to speak to that and, and, and to pray for each other, to encourage each other to draw to Christ who is enough, to not let the enemy steal their testimony or their joy in that day that God has given us, to not give way to our flesh, but to keep Christ the center. I need Jennifer to do this for me, reorienting me back to Christ and who I am in Christ. Finally, in verse 21, the first part of verse 21, the part we didn't look at earlier, he says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Because you are born again, as spoken of in verse 18, because you are the first fruits of God's new creation, because righteousness is the aim and practice of a true Christian, James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Put away sinful living. Put away unrighteousness. A, a modern society wants to say that there's many facets of the church that are uh, guilty of being too condemning or judgmental of different aspects of society. And sadly, many modern churches are, 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 are bending to this and changing the way they do life and hold each other accountable and live out the Word of God. But if it's sin declared clearly by God, we're to put it away. We're not to cuddle up to it. We'll call it okay. Filthiness and wickedness is worldliness. Worldliness, hear this, is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. This is not trivial. It is essential. We must understand that because we are born again in Christ, that we put away what is of the world. What is sinful and filthy and wicked to be done with them. This makes me think of the counsel Peter gives in 1 Peter 4.3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, for worldly living, secular living. That's behind you. Living in sensuality, or in passions, or in drunkenness, or orgies, or drinking parties, or lawless idolatry, to name a few. That, that any amount of past sinning is enough is what he's saying. If you sinned a little before you were converted and born again, it's enough. And if you sinned a ton, like you were a chief sinner before you were converted and made you, it's enough. That you can never sin so little that you say, you know what, I just need a little more time for a little more sinning. <laughs> and yet, either you or someone you know is guilty of saying, I know I need to get right with God. I need to make a break with this sinful practice. 
but just a little more time. It's just, it, it seems to be working well for me. I'm going to get to that. Peter's saying clearly, your, your past sinning is more than sufficient. It is enough. You don't need any more. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. In Christ we are possessors of the power to no longer sin. We have been forgiven of all the things that once guaranteed our condemnation before God, our eternal punishment. So why would we go back to put those clothes on again? Now, now let me be clear. The struggle against sin is still real. And it's why all these things that Peter and James John are giving us as we've looked at today is needed. Why all the commands to put off unrighteousness, to put them away, are needed. Because it's a fight. But you've got to realize, in Christ, you've put on a new jersey. You play for the championship team now. Jesus wins. And you're in Christ. So why would you go back and put on the old jersey again? Why would you wake up and put the new jersey on, but then give terrible false testimony of who Jesus is and what His Word says by living out of the old playbook of our flesh and sin and our enemy. Put it away, he says. Some of you need to do serious business with this today because you have not been convinced that the sin that you're continuing in is enough. You're trying to hold up Jesus as the master of your life, but over here you're trying to hold on to some sinful practice. I love you enough, and the people of our church, if we're, if we're honoring God and His Word, will love you enough to, to not let it pass, but to speak into your life and walk with you and hold you accountable to that. And fight together. Why? Because it's not just about you, it's about Christ. It's about a false testimony of the Gospel to continue in these things. They just simply will not coexist. It's enough. Repent, turn from it, and be done with it. And yeah, financially it may be hard, or the circumstances of your days, or your job, or your children might. But at the end of the day, is it about conveniences? Is it about circumstances? Or is it about honoring God? Who's really Lord? Him? Or the conveniences of this world and this life and our, the kingdom that we're building? For some of you, this is the reason why you've kept devotion to God at arm's length. You'll say, hey, I'll get to that later. Right now, I just want to see a little more. You've got to see that's what you're saying. And for you, I plead, you, you don't know what tomorrow holds. Repent today. Trust your life to Jesus to be Lord, to submit yourself to His Word to find satisfaction in Christ and no longer in sinful things, no longer in the world's agenda, to truly trust Jesus. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with humility the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. 
Paul says it so clear, Ephesians 4, 22-24. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off, put on. These are action words. To live in Christ is to obey His word, to put off the old self, the indwelling sin, and to put on the new self, to grow in holiness. Church, holiness is not an option for believers. It's, it's the call on your life, if you claim Christ, that today, ultimately, at the end of the day, is not for you. Our prize is God. Our, our home is in the new heavens and the new earth. We are sojourners, exiles, missionaries in this day, in this age. Your call, Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, is to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. That for those who are not yet saved, we would take seriously these things. And honor him, that they would see and savor the gospel that sets them free. Amen? Stand with me. And let's proclaim with our voices this morning, all glory be to Christ. And we've seen today what righteous living is in just a few verses. We see what it is that our faith is at work. That we would, we would see why. All glory be to Christ. Lord, we thank you for this time together in your holy word. And just a few verses of James. Lord, I just thank you for the gift of this letter. In just nine weeks, so much good, good fruit, good opportunity to grow and to mature and be convicted of these things, Lord. That you would just continue that work in us. That we would, we would not be guilty of, of hearing these things and, and, then, and then putting them away and, and moving on with our day and our lunch and our, and our work week and forgetting. But that you would stir in us Holy Spirit-driven conviction to do business with these things, to climb back into your word, to go to you in prayer, to confess our sin, and to seek accountability and opportunity to, to honor you with what it looks like to live righteously in these ways. That, that Lord, I'm excited because, because the opportunity for our relationships to grow and to mature as we are better listeners and not arrogant people who want to just speak and, and, and be right in our own eyes, but th- 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 that you would work in our lives to that our flesh would slow down and our f- unrighteous anger that's just so common to just brew and pop, that you would change and mold our character. I've, I've seen you take angry, vicious, prideful men. I've seen you break them to humble, sweet, loving men. Lord, Lord, I've seen you you take a variety of characters and how we struggle in sin and and shape and mold and move us. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we close today, as as we prepare to go, that we just see why. All of this, Lord, if you're not in it, it's in vain. That, that, That it is for your glory that we do these things. It's for your name that we do business with these things. And so we love you, and and we praise your holy name, and, and we just join our voices now to sing and celebrate you, the living God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.